This is the 10th annual literary night with the Dudleys, and we're glad to have them here after their escapade in the, on the East Coast. Uh, to get this evening started, I wanted to read a little poem about exile and homecoming. Uh, it's by uh, Billy uh, Collins, the uh, poet laureate from 2001 to 2003. It's uh, about a mother. It's like the father, father of the prodigal son, mothers too, are a good metaphor for homecoming because they shower love and care upon us just because of who they are. The poem is called The Lanyard. The other day, as I was ricocheting slowly off the pale blue walls of this room, bouncing from typewriter to piano and bookshelf to an, to an envelope lying on the floor, I found myself in the section of the dictionary where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one more suddenly into the past, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake learning how to braid thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what uh, you did with them, but that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted teaspoons of medicine to my lips, set cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, <laughs> which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift, not the archaic truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hands, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless Worthless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. Now, is that wonderful about mothers? Oh, I love that poem. I did that for my mother years and years ago. Well, as I mentioned uh, earlier, this event is sponsored by the Library Committee. Some of you may be unaware that this church has a Library Committee. Uh, these are the people who help you find the books, reshelve the books, you borrow and purchase new books for the library, among many other tasks that help keep the library functioning smoothly. Uh, there are about 20 volunteers involved in this ministry, and they all have name tags on, uh, and you've seen them at the book tables. Uh, these, books, uh, these folks are book lovers and reading wonks and would enjoy talking to you about the library. And if any one of you out there would like to be involved with the library in any way, please talk to one of these wonderful people. Uh, ten years ago, this committee considered the opportunity that our then new pastor and his wife afforded us, both of them having graduate degrees in English literature. We considered how they might use their literary and theological skills in an evening promoting library usage. We conceived the notion of a literary night uh, event where a discussion of how great literature and the gospel message might converge. This evening is a descendant of that seminal idea, the 10th Annual Literary Night with the Dudleys. 
The committee set out to accomplish at least four goals. We wanted to get to know our pastor and his wife uh, and have fun doing it. We thought it would be splendid if they could relate great literature to the gospel. We wanted to encourage you to use the library and its many resources, and we wanted to raise money for library acquisitions and the larger library ministry. And in this regard, we will be receiving a free will offering for this purpose after the, after the program. So please give generously. Get out those Jacksons and those Grants, fold it up in your wallet, and release them to the fresh air of intellectual curiosity and understanding. So there's an appeal. You'll get more appeals. So we are so thankful and grateful that the Dudleys have agreed to honor us by sharing their knowledge of great literature and the Christian faith. Can we give them a big applause here? Uh, let me open the evening with prayer and then turn the evening over to them. God our Father, Creator and Redeemer, the psalmist asks, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Literature asks similar questions, Lord, and so we ask your blessing on Scott and Christina's words that they may edify you and bring us to a more complete knowledge of who you are and of what we are to do, and give us grateful hearts for all, all you have done so graciously for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jerry. Well, it is... Um, wow, that's tall. Um, it's good to be here again. Uh, this thing that we did the first time, the first year we were here, that we thought was just a fun one-off thing has turned into this great tradition. And every time we drive up, uh, we say to each other, do you think anyone will come? And... But as long as you keep coming, we will probably keep doing it. Um, the theme this year is, oh, and by the way, I also want to encourage you to give generously. The library is a wonderful resource, and uh, this is one of their main, if not the main, fundraiser for acquiring books. So as you leave, do, do give generously, please, because it's a, an important resource for, for this church. Um, the theme this year is Exile and Homecoming. And uh, we're going to look at three works of literature. We're going to look at the Odyssey and Gone with the Wind and the Grapes of Wrath. And there are few words in the English language that have more emotional resonance than home. I remember when I was 15, I was an exchange student to Mexico. It was actually a poverty immersion program. I thought I was going to Acapulco. I didn't read the fine print. Um, and I remember being in, I was put in this small town in Mexico that was basically a slum. And I was living in a slum at 15, having never been outside of Richland, Washington. Um, and I remember about a week in, finding a payphone, figuring out how to call home. My mother answered, and I burst into tears because I was so homesick at, at 15, and it wasn't Acapulco. So th this, this thing of home is deep in us. It is deep in Western literature. Uh, exile and homecoming is, is a major theme from the beginning, starting with the Bible. Um, the Bible is all about exile, exile and homecoming, and it, it says that homesickness actually is our permanent condition uh, on this planet, that we started in a home, and then in Genesis 3, we are exiled from that home because of our sin, and then when you get to Revelation, we are back home again. And all throughout the Bible, there are many exiles and returns, little tiny motifs all throughout. So Israel is promised the land of Canaan, but then they are in exile in slavery in Egypt, but then they leave and come back home. 
The Jews are, the Babylonians uh, capture the Jews, destroy Jerusalem, and take them into exile. So they are in exile, but they return 70 years later. Jesus leaves his home in heaven, so he is in exile, but then he returns to the Father. By the time you get to Revelation, we are back home again. So there's all of these motifs of exile and homecoming that run all through Scripture. And finally, we end in Revelation home again, but we're not really home again because we're in a different place than where we started. We start in a garden, we end in a city. So there's this motif all through Scripture of home away, home, but the second home, when we come back home, it's not the same. It's different. And that's, that's, uh, that's sort of this, you can never go home because once you've been in exile, you return to a different place and you return a different person. So that's all throughout Scripture. It's also, uh, it's also deep in, all, in most of Western literature in one way or another, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. We long for home, but when we get back home, it's not what we recognize. What that means is home is an unstable signifier, and I'm going to talk about what that means in a minute. So if that doesn't make any sense, I'll, I'll talk about that. One of the other foundational texts to Western literature, the Iliad and the Odyssey, all about homecoming. The Iliad is about the Trojan War. The Odyssey is about Odysseus's journey home from the Trojan War. He's been gone a total of 20 years. Meanwhile, back home in Ithaca, his son, Telemachus, is turning 21. So now he's a man. And there are 108 suitors who are trying to persuade Odysseus' wife, Penelope, to marry them because obviously Odysseus must be dead, right? And, and so and, and as they do this, these suitors are living off of Odysseus' hospitality even though he's not there. They're eating all his food. They're drinking all of his wine, right? 108 suitors. They're just living off of him even though he's not there. Penelope delays making a decision which one she's going to marry by saying when she's done weaving the king's shroud, then uh, she'll decide which suitor to marry. So all day she weaves, and then all night she unweaves the shroud. So for 20 years, the shroud never grows, leaving you wondering just how stupid are these suitors <laughs> that they don't recognize that they are being fooled, right? The Odyssey is actually a story of two exiles in return, kind of together. The, you know, there's the big one of Odysseus going to the Trojan War, trying to get back, but then there's the smaller story of his son, Telemachus, reaching the age of manhood, and he feels that he needs to defeat the suitors, but first he has to know if his father is dead or alive, so he leaves Ithaca and travels throughout Greece to figure out what happened to his father. Now, for Telemachus, his exile and homecoming is kind of a coming-of-age story. He leaves Ithaca a boy, he returns a man. Odysseus's exile and homecoming, however, is not about a coming-of-age story. It's not about a youth stepping into manhood. It's a midlife crisis. The whole book is actually one giant midlife crisis. Um, and it's all there. The suitors are younger men ready to take his place, just like his son is ready to take his place. His home is in danger of being taken over by younger men, and not just taken over, but at his expense. The suitors are living off of his hospitality. This is like the middle-aged frustration, right? That younger person there who, who you have fed, who you have nourished, who have, you, you have raised, and all they gave you was a lanyard, right? <laughs> and you hired them, or they, they profit off the business you built, or they profit off the freedom that you went to war to fight for, and now they want to take your place, right? This younger person that is trying to supplant you, you gave him the tools to supplant you. It's one of the frustrations of middle age. 
The other way that the Odyssey is really just this kind of midlife crisis is it's ostensibly about how Odysseus wants to get home. But not that much. It takes him 10 years. And now, you know, it's, they say it's because of the gods, but actually the things that are keeping him from home are the definitive midlife crisis things. If you go through all the stories, it's two things. It's adventure and it's sex, right? That's what keeps delaying him from getting back, back home. You know, it's just the midlife crisis. On the other hand, you know, his adventure, his wanderings, it represents that longing that some people have in midlife. You know, I want adventure, I want sex. Meanwhile, home, what does it represent? Well, domesticity, you know, what's familiar, right? On the other hand, exile is the adventure, it's what's exciting, right? This is, this is the ancient Greek version of buying the sports car and leaving the wife for the aerobic instructor named Bambi. <laughs> or Candy. Right? That's, what this, that's kind of what this is all about. Midlife feels like an exile from youth. I used to have this youth and I want to get back. I'm exiled from who I really am. I'm exiled from youth. So some folks, they go off on this adventure, they go off on this affair or whatever, right? It's leaving the present to go back to the past, which you think is your home, your youth, which actually isn't your past anymore. It's the future that you want. All of that to say exile and homecoming are unstable signifiers. They alternate back and forth. They inform each other. One leads to the other and the other leads to the other one. And we want both all at the same time. So I'm going to dive into the text. After we hear all about how Telemachus and Penelope and the suitors and all of that, four books, some of it uh, a wee bit boring, um, we switch to Odysseus's story. And we pick it up where he has been trapped by the goddess Calypso. And the god Hermes... He's been there for seven years, and the god Hermes comes to tell Calypso that Odysseus, she's supposed to let Odysseus go free after seven years because Zeus wants it, and what Zeus wants, Zeus is going to get. Um, but Calypso is in love with Odysseus. She doesn't want to let him go. So she starts to um, argue a little bit. She says to Hermes, the god who is telling her she has to let Odysseus go, you resent this mortal man beside me, but I saved him. He was all alone and astride his keel when Zeus with his flashing thunderbolt had shattered and shivered his rapid vessel in the midst of, wi of the wine-dark ocean. All his brave comrades perished then. He alone was borne on to this place by wind and wave. I welcomed him. I tended him. I offered him immortality and eternal youth. Right? There it is, that midlife fantasy. If I just go on this adventure, if I just go do this other thing, if I just get away from home and all that that represents, and, you know, the old ball and chain, then I will be young again. Right? It's classic kind of stuff. And um, she goes on. The Hermes says, you have, to, you have to do it. Zeus is going to be mad. And so she leaves and she goes, the queenly nymph with this message of Zeus still in her ears went off in quest of bold Odysseus and found him sitting upon the shore. His eyes were never dry of tears while the sweetness of life ebbed away from him in his comfortless, comfortless longings to return home since the nymph was dear to him no longer, that is, Calypso. Although at nighttime, true, he slept with her. <laughs> right? But, but this was against his will. She was loving and he unloving. He passed the daytime seated upon the rocky shore, shedding tears and gazing outward over the barren sea. Well, I, I love my wife, you see, but I sort of love you. And I mean, it's just, it's sort of the classic dilemma, right? And it's the classic mistress syndrome, right? She wants to make a home with Odysseus, but he actually has a home. And if he's going to go back to any home, he's going to go back to that home. And the thing he doesn't want actually is another home because that's kind of what he's trying to get away from. 
right? So then they go on to have a conversation about his leaving, and Calypso says this, Subtle Odysseus, so then your mind is firmly set on returning home now without delay, and to your home and to your country. Well, then go then, and joy go with you in spite of it all. Yet if you knew, if you fully knew what miseries are fated to fill you there, what cup you have to drink before you attain your own land, you would choose to stay here with me, to join with me in calm possession of this domain, to be beyond the reach of death, this despite all your zeal to see once more the wife that you yearn for day by day. And yet I doubt if I fall behind her in form and feature, for indeed it would be unbecoming that a mortal woman should vie in form with me, the face of an eternal goddess. You know, I'm hotter than that old nag back home, right? <laughs> Subtle Odysseus answered her, Goddess and queen, do not make this a cause for anger with me. I know the truth of everything that you say. I know that my wise Penelope, when a man looks at her, is far beneath you in form and stature. She's immortal. You are an immortal, unaging goddess. But I'm still going back. Yet notwithstanding my desire and longing day by day is still to reach my home and to see the day of my return. Right? Penelope represents domesticity, safety, security, friendship, affection, stability. Home is safe, home is comfortable, and home is boring. Calypso represents adventure, the exotic, but also the dangerous. You know? And, and, and it means you're in this perpetual exile away from stability. And so he wants both at the same time. Well, the story goes on. He escapes. He ends up on an island as the guest of a king there named Alcinous. And, and, and it's there that he starts to recount his tale of his journey. And this is the most familiar part of the Odyssey. We all know it. It's Cyclops, Lotus Eaters, Sirens, all of that stuff. But there's an irony here that he tells this story of his journeys while he's the guest of a king in the king's home experiencing the king's hospitality. And you'll see this throughout the Odyssey. There's this big theme of hospitality, and it's in those places where he's at home that he tells his stories. He go, has flashbacks of his adventures. So you've got this, again, you've got this both and. He's home, he's enjoying all the comforts of home, but he's recounting and reliving his adventures. And then he goes on to talk about the parts that we are most familiar with. The lotus eaters, who give his men some food that make them forget all about home so that they don't want to go back. Again, you see that, that is, we want home, we, we want to go back home, but the lure of adventure, the lure of exotic lands, the lure of a new life is pulling us away. We want both at the same time. Plus, we just plain forget. You know, as Robert Frost says in his poem, The Road Not Taken, I saved the first for a later day, but knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted I would ever get back. So once we are exiled, we kind of don't get back home because way leads on to way, and we just kind of forget. Um... Then he gets, off, he gets away from the lotus eaters. He ends up being captured by the cyclops, which is just a great story. And I just want to read you one little part of it. It um, has almost nothing to do, it has nothing to do with our theme, but it, I just like it. He's trying to convince the cyclops not to be such a monster, and he frustrates the cyclops. And it says, To these words of mine, the savage creature made no response. Only he sprang up and, stretching his hands toward my companions, clutched two at once and battered them on the floor like puppies. Their brains gushed out and soaked the ground. Then tearing them limb from limb, he made his supper out of them. It's just a great, <laughs> great part of literature. He blinds the Cyclops. Once he, he gets the Cyclops drunk, blinds him. Then he gets trapped in Circe's island, and she's another enchantress, represents sexuality, and, and turns all of his men into swine and seduces him to stay there for a year. So very symbolic. 
sex will turn you into an animal and it will unman you. If you, if you, if you fall to its temptation, sexual temptation will take away your manhood. And real manhood in Greek mythology and in the Odyssey is finally not about the adventure, not about leaving the wife for the seducti- seduc- seductive enchantress. Real manhood is about going home to your responsibilities and loving the wife who has been faithful to you and helping your son to become a man himself. So he goes through these adventures. He eventually gets home to Ithaca. He's disguised as a beggar and nobody recognizes him. Not his son, not his wife. Kind of symbolically showing you can't go home. Because even if you come back after you've been in exile, you're a different person. It may not be so much that home has changed, but you have changed and you can't really go back there. I don't know if you had this experience your freshman year of college and you went back and suddenly everything was irritating, right? And you just didn't feel like you belonged anymore. You can't really go back home. So then Penelope arranges a contest for the suitors and she says, whoever can string Odysseus's bow and shoot it through a dozen axe heads, they, I'll marry them. And if that's not phallic, nothing is phallic. That's Freud all over it. In other words, if you all are man enough, if, if you all are as much of a man as Odysseus, well then you can have me. But Odysseus is there, disguised as the beggar, and he and his son, but the son doesn't know it's dad yet, along with Telemachus, he turns his bow on all of the suitors and he manages to kill them all. all right, so basically saying, I'm a bigger man than you are. I, I am more man than all of you put together. Um, plus, this is also the, sort of a midlife fantasy where the younger man actually never supplants him. He works side by side with Odysseus, but he doesn't supplant the father. Finally, Penelope knows who he really is when he s- reminds her that their bed was made from an olive tree uh, that's still firmly rooted in the ground. And then she realizes that it must be Odysseus, another sexualized image. And then, you know, the suitors are all dead, and then everyone lives happily ever after. This is the midlife fantasy. I can leave. I can have the adventure. I can reclaim my youth. The young people aren't actually, you know, they don't, they're never going to take my place, so I don't have to worry about that. I'm eternally young. I can have my adventure. I can go out with the aerobics instructor named Bambi and still come home to the loving wife. Fantasy. And it actually doesn't work. And you can see that actually in the very end. Most people think it ends right there where he kills the suitors. But then there's a tacked on part where the parents of the suitors come to try to kill Odysseus and then the goddess Athena comes down and makes everyone reconcile and then everyone lives happily ever after. It sort of shows that it's not natural, that it, that it takes a deus ex machina kind of intervention in order to make this midlife fantasy work because it's not actually real. You, you can't leave home and then just keep coming back and expecting it to be the same. And real manhood and real adventure and real strength is when you go home and you fulfill your duties and you, do, you, and you are faithful to the people who have been faithful to you. Now we're going to go forward about 3,000 years to 19th century America. Um, yeah, well, I feel close to you. Um, yeah, it's not just guys who get restless at home. It's also young teenage girls, Um, so we're going to start with Scarlet. And Gone with the Wind, as the title says, it's all about exile and homecoming. I I am short. I'm going to stand. I I feel short. I'm going up here. 
M. Gone with the Wind is all about a home that is lost to you, and you can never get it back, and maybe it never even existed as you imagined it. You've built it up to be this thing that everyone still yearns for, and maybe it never really existed. Uh, Margaret Mitchell took 10 years to write this book, and uh, she grew up, she talks about growing up and hearing about the war, the war, the war, everybody talking nonstop about the war, the war, and she said she was 10 years old before she finally learned that actually the South had lost that war, because the way people talked about it, she had no idea. Um, and so the loss of the Civil War was for her race and her particular class an exile, an exile from, if not their actual selves, from their image of themselves. Um, and, and it wasn't just like in Paradise Lost where you look back and the Garden of Eden is still there even though there, there's the swords, flashing swords. Their home was destroyed, right? It was destroyed. Um, and Mitchell seems to be arguing through this novel that it was Eden. It was, there, yes, okay, there were, there were lots of serpents in Eden, but it was Eden, right? Um, and, and the serpent was not as straightforward as Yankees would like to believe. So um, she was accused, as many writers of historical fiction are, of making Scarlet too modern of a heroine, um, which is funny to us, I think, because now everybody, you can't admit that you love and love this book and read it like 25 times. See, my back cover has fallen off. I bought this when I was 13. And Scott asked me beforehand, he said, well, are you going to reread it? I said, are you kidding me? I read that, read that book, I think, eight times in my 13th year. I'm not going to read it again. It's like, just plop me down and I can recite verbatim. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's funny to us because now you cannot admit that you love, love, love this book without having to immediately apologize for it and apologize for loving it. Um, okay, so what was lost? They are, the, the South is exiled, supposedly, right? Exiled from money. They had a lot of money. Um, exiled from power, this certain... Uh, planter class, exiled from status at their top of the heap, and exiled from privilege and being able to boss people around who um, couldn't do anything in return. And however precarious the foundations of that home were, it was home, and they mourn it as sincerely as any other lost home. I, I was reading this book uh, a few years ago called Confederates in the Attic. Anyone ever read that one? It's a wonderful, Tony Horowitz, he writes kind of I don't know, history travelogue thing. So he goes traveling through the South, and, um, and uh, he meets this woman. He, there's this one chapter called Gone with the Window, where he goes to, um, he goes to Atlanta, where there's this just, you know, gone with the wind extravaganza. They're milking it. And um, he meets all these different people, and he, including this one very elderly lady. And she says, um, you can't imagine what Gone with the Wind meant to my generation. When I asked her why this was so, her eyes misted over. Poverty, she said. Ours, I mean. When I was coming up in Arkansas, we didn't have chairs in both the kitchen and setting room. So the adults dragged chairs from one room to the other while the kids sat on the floor. Life was that bare. Then this book comes out about a rich South we never knew. It was escapism, I guess. And she says, um, she read it in the eighth grade, and she said, it was like visiting another planet. To think our ancestors lived like that. The only one of ours we'd heard about was a grandfather who went broke and lost his mind over the Civil War. He papered his living room with Confederate dollars. So um, it's gone, right? And, and when this book is written, finally in 19, published finally in 1936, um, 
there you are in 1936, and it is like a window on another world that you didn't know existed, and you think, was this, was this, what I, was this my home? And I had no idea this was my home. Um, so Scarlett's experience embodies this kind of rich southern planter experience in the war. And like any other kind of retrospective look at the loss of a home, it's half wishful thinking and half grief. Um, she begins, as you all know, as this pampered, carefree teenager. The only thing she has to worry about is she has a crush on this guy, and she thinks this guy is going to marry his cousin, those inbreds, like they, those wilks, like they always do. And, um, and to a teenager, this is world-shattering. Um, and so she takes everything that she has been given entirely for granted. Of those around her, um, Ashley, who she's in love with, is the one who has the, the most understanding of what a golden world they live in and what the South is fighting for and what's lost the first moment a shot is fired. Um, he, and in the book, he comes to represent this lost world. And uh, Scarlett's persistence in caring for him represents this constant pining that Mitchell saw around her for this South that maybe kind of was and kind of wasn't and is half made up. Um, she says later that she never really loved him. She didn't understand him. She just pinned everything she liked on him. And that's kind of what's going on in this, in this yearning for the South. There's one point in the book where um, Ashley is married to Melanie and Scarlett goes to Atlanta to live with Melanie and then she tries to read some of Ashley's letters just to make sure he wasn't writing real love letters to his wife. And so he says, this is Ashley writing to Melanie, when I lie on my blanket and look up at the stars and say, what are you fighting for? I think of states' rights and cotton and the darkies and the Yankees whom we've been bred to hate, and I know that none of these is the reason why I am fighting. Instead, I see 12 oaks and remember how the moonlight slants across the white columns and the unearthly way the magnolias look opening under the moon and how the climbing roses make the side porch shady even at the hottest noon. And I see mother sewing there as she did when I was a little boy and I hear the darkies coming home across the fields at dusk tired and singing and ready for supper and the sound of the windlass as the bucket goes down into the cool well so he thinks and thinks and thinks about home. And he says, perhaps this is what is called patriotism, love of home and country. But Melanie, it goes deeper than that. And then he, he goes and he says, he, he looks at the soldiers sleeping next to him and he says, I wonder if they know they're fighting for a cause that was lost the minute the first shot was fired. For our cause is really our own way of living and that is gone already. But I don't think they think these things and they're lucky. And then it says, Scarlett folds the letter back up because she's so dang bored by his writing. Um, so, which is hilarious. But, okay, so Ashley represents that world. And, but home is lost. Destruction has come. And Ashley already recognizes that it's gone, right? Scarlett doesn't. She's in denial for a while until Sherman reaches Atlanta and the war comes to her doorstep. Um, you remember the scene? I, I thought about showing you the clip, but really, you've seen that. And she sends Prissy to go find Rhett Butler to rescue them because she wants to go home. So she comes home. She finds childhood is gone, right? Safe havens are gone. Uh, she, this whole time, she's just wanting to be find, find her mother again so her mom can take care of everything and this war stuff will go away. And she finds herself for the first time unshielded and alone with everyone depending on her. Scott talked about how coming of age is an exile of sorts. This is her coming of age moments. And she finds she is exiled from her home even though she is home. Um, 
and all the serpents that were hidden in that garden are revealing themselves, right? Her mother, you heard Mammy say, her mother died because she was tending the white trash people who brought the typhoid into their house. Um, their house has been trashed by the Yankees who used it as a headquarters. Um, all the tensions have come to a rolling boil. And this whole idea that the slaves were so happy at Terra, everyone, everyone happy, happy, there's only three left by the time she comes back. Everybody else was so happy they took off the first chance they could, right? So um, after this moment, and I cut out the part where she finds out her dad has actually lost his mind. It's kind of hinted at there. But it says, she was seeing things with new eyes, for somewhere along the road to Terra, she had left her girlhood behind her. She was no longer plastic clay, yielding imprint to each new experience. The clay had hardened, sometime in this indeterminate day which had lasted a thousand years. She had birthed Melanie's baby that morning, so. Tonight was the last time she would ever be ministered to as a child. She was a woman now, and youth was gone. And so she thinks about how she's got to take on everybody. There's Melanie and her baby, and they're kind of sick. There's her six sisters. They're the three ex-slaves. There's her dad who's lost his mind, and everything is on her now. Um, of a sudden, the oft-told family tales to which she had listened since babyhood, listened half-bored, impatient, and but partly comprehending, were crystal clear. Gerald, penniless, had raised Tara. Ellen, that's her mother, Ellen had risen above some mysterious sorrow. Grandfather Robillard, surviving the wreck of Napoleon's throne, had founded his fortunes anew on the fertile Georgia coast. Great-grandfather Prudhomme had carved a small kingdom out of the dark jungles of Haiti, lost it, and lived to see his name honored in Savannah. There were the Scarlets who had fought with the Irish volunteers for a free Ireland and been hanged for their pains, and the O'Haras who died at the Boyne, battling to the end for what was theirs. All had suffered crushing misfortunes and had not been crushed. They had not been broken by the crash of empires, the machetes of revolting slaves, war, rebellion, prescription, confiscation. Malign fate had broken their necks, perhaps, but never their hearts. They had not whined, they had fought. And when they died, they died spent but unquenched. So she sees them. She sees, like, images of these people, and she thanks them. So here's what's left. She, she finds, ah! All those stories of exiles and refugees, now I'm one of them. And now I understand that this is kind of the human lot. This has been my family's lot. This is my lot. And she kind of squares her shoulders and she takes it on. Um, the new Terra becomes a very different place from the home she left behind, right? In the new Terra, everyone has to work, including her. Remember what happens to her hands? And then Rhett finds out that she was lying about it. Um, there, the three ex-slaves who are living there, they're on the same level at this point. Um, they take in refugees from the war. They take in a guy who they, she said, never, ever, ever before the war would they have had anything to do with this man. He's a cracker, right? Never. Um, so New Home is a very different place, economically, racially, socially. And Scarlett, just like the Southerners ever since, rushed both to distance herself from the past and also to salvage what she could from the wreckage. Um, in the novel, it, uh, Margaret Mitchell says, Scarlett always felt this affinity toward the city of Atlanta because she was, she says, she was at least christened the same year as Atlanta. So she thinks of herself as the same age as Atlanta. And um, after, after the war, she becomes, this, uh, she, she becomes the new South, 
right? If you remember, she uh, starts running a sawmill with convicts. She goes crazy, right? She's running businesses. She's doing all these things. And everybody's saying she's unwomanly. Everybody, she's saying she's this, that. She's not behaving. She's hanging around with the, the butlers, hang out with the carpetbaggers and the scalawags and the new Republicans. And um, they, everyone else can't stand them. So she becomes the new South. And... Um, Tony Horowitz, he says when he gets to Atlanta, let me see, sorry, I didn't actually have this book, so I had to get the library Kindle edition. Um, he says, to Southerns, as true sons and daughters of Dixie like to call themselves, Atlanta was the anti-South, a crass, brash city built in the image of the Chamber of Commerce and overrun by carpetbaggers, corporate climbers, and conventioneers. Every time I look at Atlanta, quipped John Shelton Reed, the South's wittiest observer, I see what a quarter million Confederate soldiers died to prevent, right? And, and, this, and so Scarlett comes to symbolize this, right? And for that, she is ostracized. Um, and then famously, she loses both men in her lives, right? She loses both homes. She, the old South, Ashley, she, he just kind of crumbles to dust before her eyes, and that dreamy, idealized, leisurely home is gone. And then the, the, the sort of temptation of the new South, right, which Rhett represents, this kind of devil-may-care and opportunistic and mercenary and grabbing and take what you can. Even Rhett decides... You know what, he, Rhett has a midlife crisis at the end of the book, and he says, I'm 45 now, and actually, it doesn't appeal to me anymore, and I'm leaving you. And, and so, suddenly, she is homeless, right? Both homes are lost to her. Both visions of the South are lost to her. Um, or is she, right? You all know this part. I was just going to read you the end. Am I doing okay? Oh, I totally am. Okay. I can read this really slowly. Okay. Um, so, he's taken off, right? Uh, let's see. But, cried her heart, casting aside the charm, which was her, I'll think of it tomorrow, right? I can't let him go. There must be some way. I won't think of it now, she said again, aloud, trying to push her misery to the back of her mind, trying to find some bulwark against the rising tide of pain. I'll, why, I'll go home to Tara tomorrow. And her spirits lifted faintly. She had gone back to Tara once in fear and defeat, and she had emerged from its sheltering walls strong and armed for victory. What she had done once, somehow, please God, she could do again. How? She didn't know. She didn't want to think of that now. All she wanted was a breathing space in which to hurt, a quiet place to lick her wounds, a haven in which to plan her campaign. She thought of Tara, and it was as if a gentle, cool hand were stealing over her heart. She could see the White House gleaming welcome to her through the reddening autumn leaves. Right, this is the dream Tara again. This one's gone. Um, feel the quiet hush of the country twilight coming down over her like a benediction. Feel the dews falling on the acres of green bushes starred with fleecy white. See the raw color of the red earth and the dismal dark beauty of the pines on the rolling hills. She felt vaguely comforted, strengthened by the picture, and some of her hurt and frantic regret was pushed from the top of her mind. She stood for a moment, remembering small things, the avenue of dark cedars leading to Terra, the banks of Cape Jessamine bushes, vivid green against the white walls, the fluttering white curtains, and Mammy would be there. Suddenly, she wanted Mammy desperately, as she had wanted her when she was a little girl, wanted the broad bosom on which to lay her head, the gnarled black hand on her hair, Mammy, the last link with the old days. With the spirit of her people, who would not know defeat, even when it stared them in the face, she raised her chin. She could get Rhett back. 
She knew she could. There had never been a man she couldn't get once she set her mind upon him. I'll think of it all tomorrow at Terra. I can stand it then. Tomorrow I'll think of some way to get him back. After all, tomorrow is another day. I, I thought you guys were going to chant that with me. Um, no, who does she sound like at the very end? She sounds like Ashley's letter, right? She has, she, what is motivating her now is again that dream construct of the South that is gone, right? It's gone. And, but it's, it's that vision. And interesting that that last vision of Mammy, right? Her mother is dead. But Mammy's still there. But we know, and in the 30s they knew, that the race relations were even more complicated after there was no more slavery than they were when there was slavery, right? That that is just, that's going to turn out to be a hollow comfort as well. Um, and maybe one that can't be recaptured. So that is my, that is my ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many of you have read The Grapes of Wrath or seen the movie The Grapes of Wrath? Okay, so we're dealing with something pretty familiar here. Um, there they are. Um, talk about midlife crisis. When you start doing that and you realize I look like my dad. Anyway, um, it was written the same year that the movie Gone with the Wind was made in 1939. And uh, Steinbeck, in my opinion, is an uneven writer. He has moments of absolute greatness. Uh, and then there are some pretty purple prose, kind of heavy-handed. But one of the things Steinbeck does beautifully is sense of place. Two years ago, I was uh, in Cambodia on one of our mission trips. And I had taken along East of Eden with me, and I read it a long time ago was rereading it, and it opens with this description of the California hills and the Salinas Valley. And I was just, I mean, it's so well done. I was there, and I was homesick, and I wanted to go back to California. He evokes a sense of place. Grapes of Wrath is all about exile and homecoming, obviously. The Jodes have to leave their home in Oklahoma uh, because of the Dust Bowl, because it's all dried up, the crops won't grow, and it's just nothing but dust. And they pack everything they have, plus all the family, which includes uh, their, one of their daughters, the pregnant uh, Rose of Sharon, who they call Rasha Sharon. And her pregnancy is very symbolic, right? It's about, you know, there's nothing kind of more that says home than a mother and child, as we started with at the beginning. And so it's an image of domesticity. So the whole family piles in this truck, plus a preacher named Casey, who has lost his faith. And... Um, as they go ahead toward California, they lose one member of the family after another. One by one, the siblings leave. And finally, Tom, who is sort of the main character, he even has to leave because he kills a man in a fight over organizing a, a union. Um, and all they have is each other, and the truck becomes home. So in a strange way, in The Grapes of Wrath, exile is home. They're the same. Um, in some ways, it's similar to Battlestar Galactica, Honest. Anyone watch the new one, the new version, not the 70s thing, but they're in a spaceship and they're looking for a place called Earth and they don't ever know if they're going to get there. And the only home they have is the spaceship. The only home the Jodes have is their, their truck. They are in exile in search of a home. And Steinbeck in the book offers a number of sort of solutions to the problem of exile and home. Um, and then he finally lands on one. And I'm just going to kind of go through the book. 
Um, not the whole thing, but parts of it. It opens, if you've read the book and if you've seen the movie, it opens actually with a scene of exile and homecoming. It opens with a truck driver picking up a hitchhiker who is Tom Joad, who is getting out of prison because he's killed a man. So now in the book, he ends up killing two people. And so he's picking up a hitchhiker named Tom coming home from prison. And so you've got both an image of exile. The truck driver is mobile, is you know, on the move, and you have Tom, Ho- Tom Joad hitchhiking, so mobile on the move, yet he's going home. But then Steinbeck makes it even more ironic because the first thing Tom starts to talk about is how he misses prison and how people who get out of prison end up going back to prison because they like the three square meals a day and prison has become home. So exile, the place of exile, has become the place of home. So the first image Steinbeck gives of home is its safety, its comfort, its predictable, its convenient. So then the truck driver drops him off and Tom meets Casey, the preacher who has lost his faith, and Tom goes to his boyhood home. And no one's there. It's, like, it's exactly like Gone with the Wind. They're all gone, right? Because what's happened is they can't grow crops because of the Dust Bowl, and the, the bank that owns the land has forced them off the land. And so it's just like Gone with the Wind. You can go home, but you can't go home. Because when you go home, it's not there anymore, and maybe it never really was there. So I'm going to read a passage where Steinbeck recounts how they, how they lose their land. Jodes and all the tenant farmers. And it, the bank owns the land and they send out a representative. And the representative chit-chats with the tenants. And at last the owner men came to the point. The tenant system won't work anymore. One man on a tractor can take the place of 12 or 14 families. Pay him a wage and take all the crop. We have to do it. We don't like to do it, but the monster, that's what he calls the bank, the monster is sick. Something happened to the monster. But you'll kill the land with cotton, said the tenants. We know. We've got to take the cotton quick before the land dies, but then we'll just sell the land. Lots of families back east want to own a piece of land. The tenant men looked up alarmed. Well, what will happen to us? How will we eat? Well, you'll just have to get off the land. The plows will go through the dooryard. And now the squatting men stood up angrily. Grandpa took up the land, and he had to kill the Indians and drive them away. Slightly ironic there. Just a little bit. He had to, Grandpa had to kill the Indians and drive them away. And Pa was born here, and he killed weeds and snakes. Then a bad year came, and he had to borrow a little money, and he was born here. There, there in the door, our children born there. And Pa had to borrow money again. The bank owned the land then, but we stayed. We got a little bit of what we raised. We know, we know all of that. It's not us, it's the bank. A bank isn't like a man or an owner with 50,000 acres. He isn't like a man either. That's the monster. Sure, cried the tenant men, but it's our land. We measured it and broke it up. We were born on it and we got killed on it and we died on it. Even if it's no good, it's still ours. That's what makes it ours, being born on it and working it and dying it. That makes ownership, not paper with numbers on it. We're sorry, it's not us. It's the monster. The bank isn't like a man. Yeah, but the bank is only made of men. No, you're wrong there. Quite wrong there. The bank is something else than men. It happens that every man in the bank hates what the bank does, and yet the bank does it. The bank is something more than men. I tell you, it's a monster. Men made it, but they can't control it. And so there's this, there's this sense of what makes home home. It's not ownership. It's bleeding on it and dying on it and working on it. And to lose all of that is to lose your whole life. Not just a place, but to lose your whole life. This is one of John Ford's better movies. Well, he did many good movies. That's such a graphic image of home being destroyed. 
And the reason, why are you, you know, they recognize each other. They are from the same town. Why are you doing this? $3 a day, that's why I'm doing it. I got to eat. My kids got to eat. So one man preserving his home ends up meaning the destruction of another man's home. And it's not just the home that's being destroyed. The fabric of community is being unwoven. And with that destruction, all of those memories, the bleeding on it, dying on it, working on it, it's all gone. Home is memories. Home is what you've invested in. And then Steinbeck talks about home is one more thing. Um, it's having a feeling and a connection to the land. Should have marked these better. Um, the tractors had light. So it's, he's talking about the tractors, what they do after they bulldoze the homes take over the land. The tractors had lights shining, for there is no day and there is no night for a tractor, and the discs turn the earth in the darkness and they glitter in the daylight. And when a horse stops work and goes into the barn, there's life and then vitality left. There's breathing and warmth, and the feet shift on the straw, and the jaws clamp on the hay, and the ears and the eyes are alive. There's warmth and life in the barn, and the heat and the smell of life. But when the motor of a tractor stops, it's as dead as the ore it came from. The heat goes out of it, the living heat, and, the, and leaves it like a corpse. Then the corrugated iron doors are closed, and the tractor man drives home to a town perhaps 20 miles away, and need not come back for weeks or months, for the tractor's dead. And this is easy, and it's efficient, so easy that the wonder goes out of the work, so efficient that the wonder goes out of the land and the working of the land, and with the wonder, the deep understanding and the relation to the land. And in the tractor man, there grows the contempt that comes only to a stranger who has a little understanding and no relation. For, nit for nitrates are not the land. Phosphates and the length of the fiber and the cotton, that's not the land. Carbon is not a man, or salt, or water, or calcium. He's all these things, but a man is more, so much more. And the land is so much more than its analysis. The man who is more than his chemistry, walking on the earth, turning his plow point for a stone, dropping his hand handles to slide over on an outcropping, kneeling in the earth to eat his lunch. That man who is more than his elements knows the land that is more than its analysis. But the machine man, driving a dead tractor on land, he does not know and he does not love. He understands it only as chemistry. And he is contemptuous of the land and of himself. When the corrugated iron doors are shut, he goes home and his home is not land. So the, the, the other thing that makes home home is a, a, a almost spiritual connection to the land. The land is alive. The land has soul. This is also Steinbeck. Steinbeck is, if he's certainly a socialist, probably a communist. And here he is, has this nostalgic vision for an agrarian economy because it's the industrial economy that's causing all this disaster. So this is Steinbeck's nostalgia to go back home to an earlier agrarian American economy. So that's the image, that's sort of some of the images of home that they're leaving. The image of home that they're going to is California. And California is, you know, the, the, California is big in the American imagination. Joni Mitchell has a song called California and she talks about sitting in a cafe in Paris, France. And she has this line, it's so old and cold and gray here. Oh, but California? California, right? It's just this mythic place, or the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Said California is the place you ought to be, right? So they, and this, this is the Beverly Hillbillies, right? And, and California is this sort of land of plenty. It's the American dream. Let me just read you. This is Grandpa talking about when I get to California. Man, just let me get out to California where I can pick me an orange and anytime I want to, or grapes. 
There's a thing I ain't never had enough of. Grapes. Going to give me a whole big bunch of grapes off a bush and whatever, and I'm going to just squash them on my face and eat them and let them run all over my chin. Gross, Grandpa. <laughs> Learn how to eat, old man. Um, you know, there's this vision of, of, of plenty. And I don't know if that grapes reminds you of it. Big grapes, any biblical image come to mind? Numbers 13, right? The promised land and the grapes that were gigantic size. All throughout, uh, Steinbeck is drawing on the Exodus story. Uh, Ma talks all the time about going to California, getting a nice house and all of that, very consciously referencing the American dream as well as the Exodus story. But even as Steinbeck brings up this mythic, wonderful home that's got grapes and they're going to get a house with a picket fence, he casts a shadow over it almost immediately. Just a few pages later, They've been talking about California and how great it's going to be when they get out there and all that. And then Ma turned to Tom and said, Tom, I hope things is all right in California. He turned and looked at her. What makes you think they ain't going to be, he said. Well, nothing. Seems too nice, kind of. I, I seen the handbill fellas pass out and, and how much work they is and, and all the high wages that there are. I, I seen in the paper how they want folks to come and pick grapes and oranges and peaches. That'd be nice work, Tom, picking peaches. Even if they wouldn't let you eat them, you maybe could snitch a little ratty one sometimes. And it'd be nice under the trees working in the shade. I'm scared of stuff so nice. I ain't got faith. I'm scared something ain't so nice about it. Tom said, well, don't roust your faith bird high and you won't do no crawling with the worms. I know, I know, that's right. That's scripture, ain't it? I guess so, said Tom. <laughs> Turns out when they get there, California isn't all that. All those handbills asking for workers, the owners print up thousands of them when they only need 100 workers to drive the price of wages down. So throughout, California is pictured as this utopia. But the word utopia, if you know, it means two things, good place and no place. So this good place is no place. It doesn't exist. It's a fantasy. It's, 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 it's just this idea. And it's an ideal. Home is an idea that keeps us moving forward and sets us out on a quest. But it's also, in fact, when they get to California, one man says to him, you don't think this is the land of milk and honey, do you? Right? When you get there, it's not all that you think it is. Um, home is an ideal, and it's a dangerous ideal for Steinbeck because it sets us on this itinerary of desire. It represents everything we want, safety, security, happiness, and we're always trying to get it, but it's no place. It's this good place, but it's never there, so we're never happy, we're never satisfied, we always have to keep moving, we're always in the truck, because whenever we get there, it doesn't satisfy. So home for Steinbeck is also kind of a dangerous idea, because it keeps us constantly on this itinerary of desire. And that's not just for the poor people, it's for the rich people too. Um... So they're in, this, they're in this, um, they're camping by the side of the road with a lot of other families, some of whom uh, have already been to California. Um, one of the things when they get to Cal when they start getting closer to California, they see people coming back from California back to Oklahoma. And they say things like, well, I can die in Oklahoma as well as I can die in California, and I'd rather die with the people I know than die out there in California. Of course, the irony is the people they know are going to California. And they're going back to, and so it's this image of all of America is on the move, right? And nobody has a home anymore, and there's no community anymore. So they're in one of these camps, and there's a guy coming back from California, and he's talking about it's not the land of milk and honey. Pa asks slowly, ain't, ain't it nice out there at all? Well, sure nice to look at, but you can't have none of it. There's a grove of yellow oranges and a guy with a gun that, that, got, a, that got a right to kill you if you touch one. 
there's a fella, newspaper fella near the coast. This newspaper fella got a million acres. Guess who that is? Casey looked up quickly. Million acres? Casey's the preacher. What in the world can he do with a million acres? Well, I don't know. Just got it, I guess. Runs a few cattle, got guards every place to keep folks off, rides around in a bulletproof car. I seen pictures of him. Fat sort of fellow with a little mean eyes. Um, I'm going to skip the profanity. Scared he's going to die. Got a million acres and scared of dying. Casey demanded, well, what in the hell can he do with a million acres? What's he want a million acres for? The man took his whitening, puckering hands out of the water and spread them, and he tightened his lower lip and bent his head down on his shoulder. I don't know, he said. Guess he's crazy. Must be crazy. Seen a picture of him. He looks crazy. Crazy and mean. Says he's scared to die, Casey asked. That's what I heard. Scared God, scared God is going to get him? I don't know. Just scared. What's he care, Pa said. Don't seem like he's having no fun. Grandpa wasn't scared, Tom said. When Grandpa was having the most fun, he comes closest to getting killed. Time Grandpa and another fellow wanged into a bunch of Navajo in, in the night, they was having the time of their lives, and at the same time, you wouldn't give them a gopher's chance at all. The preacher smiled, and he looked puzzled. He splashed a floating water bug away in his hand, with his hands. If he needs a million acres to make him feel rich, seems to me he needs it because he feels awful poor inside himself. And if he's poor inside himself, there ain't no million acres going to make him feel rich. And maybe he's disappointed that nothing he can do will ever make him feel rich. Not rich like Miss Wilson was when she gave up her tent so Grandma could die in it. I ain't trying to preach no sermon, but I never seen nobody that's busy as a prairie dog collecting stuff that wasn't disappointed. He grinned. Does sort of sound like a sermon, don't it? <laughs> so even the rich folks, they're gobbling up land and all of that, and even they've got all the homes nice, they still don't feel satisfied because home is this thing that you never get to which keeps you on this itinerary of desire. And that sense of homelessness and rootless isn't just, rootlessness isn't just for poor. It's not just for rich. It's American. And it is deeply ingrained in America in a way for Steinbeck that is not ingrained in any other culture. Let me read you... Um, he, he intersperses the story with these sort of just descriptive chapters. It's a little like Moby Dick that way. Some critics love it. Some hate it. I, I actually kind of like it. Um, this is a descriptive cha chapter. Once California belonged to Mexico and its land to the Mexicans, and a horde of tattered, feverish Americans poured in. And such was their hunger for land that they took the land, stole Sutter's land and Guerrero's land, took the grants and broke them up and growled and quarreled over them, those frantic American hungry men, and they guarded with guns the land that they had stolen from the Mexicans. They put up houses and barns. They turned the earth and they planted crops. And these things were possessions, and possession was ownership. The Mexicans were weak and they fled. They couldn't resist because they wanted nothing in the world as frantically as the Americans wanted land. But then, with time, the squatters were no longer squatters but owners. And their children grew up and had children on the land, and the hunger was gone from them, the feral hunger, the gnawing, tearing hunger for land, for water and for earth, and the good sky over it, for the green thrusting grass, for the swelling roots. They had these things so completely that they did not know about them anymore. They had no more the stomach-tearing lust for a rich acre and a shining blade to plow it, for seed and a windmill beating its wings in the air. And it came about that the owners no longer worked on their farms. They farmed on paper, and they forgot the land the smell, the feel of it, and remembered only that they owned it, remembered only what was gained and lost by it. But then the dispossessed were drawn west from Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, from Nevada and Arkansas, families, tribes, dusted out, tractored out, 
Carloads, caravans, homeless and hungry, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000. They streamed over the mountains, hungry and restless, restless as ants, scurrying to find work to do, to lift, to push, to pull, to pick, to cut, anything, any burden to bear for food. The kids are hungry. We got no place to live, like ants scurrying for work, for food, and most of all, for land, for land. But we ain't foreign. Nope. Seven generations back, Americans, and beyond that, Irish, Scotch, English, German, one of our folks in the Revolution, and they lots of folks in the Civil War, both sides, Americans. They were hungry and they were fierce, and they had hoped to find a home, and they found only hatred. Okies. The owners hated them because the owners knew they were soft and the Okies strong, and they, and they, and they, were, and they were fed with the Okies, and they were fed with the Okies' hunger. And perhaps the owners had heard from their grandfathers how easy it was to steal land from a soft man if you are fierce and hungry and armed. Steinbeck gets at this deep insecurity of the American dream, that we have taken it all from someone else, and that someone else is just waiting to take it from us. And that goes all through American history. Back in the turn of the century, right, it's the Irish, they're going to take it from us, or it's the immigrants. Now it's, you know, the Chinese and the Indians, and, you know, it's all of these things. That this sense of somehow we don't actually own it. We're all squatters. We all came from someone else. Even the Native Americans came over the land bridge from Asia. We are a culture that is always homeless. America is home to nobody. It's, it's always been squatters' rights in America. Not only that, but American society is completely mobile in a way that no other society is. The American psyche sort of loves homelessness. Whereas if you're in a caste society or a feudal society, you are rooted not just in place, but you are rooted in a social place, right? But America is that place where there is no rootedness in the land. Everyone's always moving west. The whole westward expansion, there's this geographic mobility, but there's also this thing that we call social mobility, going up the social ladder, or the pursuit of happiness, right? Even the words pursuit or social mobility is all about movement. So we are a rootless, restless, wandering people. Exile is the American state, and that creates this sort of anxiety in the American psyche, that there is no home and that the home I have belonged to someone else. Steinbeck beautifully chronicles how one person pushes another person off the land only to get pushed off the land. And now that translates then into the American dream. You have a house, move to a bigger house. You have a bigger house, get a car. Have a car, get a bigger car. It's all about pursuit, mobility, up, 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 west, west, west. We are a homeless nation. Well, they get to California, and then they, the first thing they do is they stay in a government camp. And it has toilets and running water and nurses, and they have dances. And in this government camp, the, there's no cops because they all police themselves in this wonderful, idyllic place. And there's this scene in the book, and it's in the movie too, it's, it's actually kind of charming, where the littlest Jodes, um, they go into the bathroom, you know, they're from Oklahoma, and they go into the bathroom and, and they flush the toilet, and they are afraid because they think they broke it. And so they run out. And I know my dad, he grew up homeless for a while, and he talks about the first time he saw a flush toilet, he was scared to death, you know, that it was going to suck him down underneath with it. Um, and this government camp, there's, you know, once they get to California, they, they start being called Okies. And there's this wonderful scene where, where Pa asks, what's an Okie? And someone says, well, it used to mean just you were from Oklahoma, but now it's a mean word. So even the name of their home is being turned against them. Even home now has, has become a weapon. But in the government camp, Ma says, I feel like people again. 
Because there's dignity, they're being treated with worth, but they can't stay. There's no home that you can stay in because they can't get work, and without work, there's no dignity and there's no food. So they're on exile again, going all over California. And toward the end of the novel, Steinbeck, after all this homelessness and rootlessness and wandering exile, finally locates home in two places. And the first place he locates home is in anger. Um, the Joad's predicament gets worse. They start to see all the fallow land in California that's just lying fallow because prices are so low it doesn't pay to farm the land. And then they see, you know, the oranges in the Depression that were being dumped and the milk that was being dumped and the food that was being burned up because in order to keep the prices high, they had to get rid of the food even though there were starving people. And he describes this scene in slightly Victorian purple prose, but uh, the people, they're watching all this food be destroyed, potatoes dumped in the river, stuff like that. The people come with nets to fish for the potatoes in the river, and the guards hold them back. They come in rattling cars to get the dumped oranges, but the kerosene is sprayed. And they stand still and watch the potatoes float by, listen to the screaming pigs being killed in the ditch and covered with quicklime, watch the mountains of oranges slop down to a putrefying ooze, and in the eyes of the people there is the failure, and in the eyes of the hungry there is a growing wrath. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. Obviously drawing off of biblical imagery as well as um, Battle Hymn of the Republic, right? He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And it's in their anger that these people finally have a home because their anger connects them together. Their anger starts to join them into community. And it's in community that there is home. And you see that first with the family. So Ma keeps saying over and over again, got to keep the family together, got to keep the family together, even though one by one they're losing, you know, grandparents die, the little kid, you know, their brothers start to run off. Um, pretty soon Tom kills another man, even he has to leave. But the, uh, but the family soon expands to a larger sense of family. And this is Steinbeck's ultimate answer to homelessness, exile. They are, they've parked by the side of the road and all up and down Route 66 are these just, you know, people will drive as far as they can and then they stop and they just camp the side of the road. But where one person camps, other people start to join. And in the evening, a strange thing happened. The 20 families became one family. The children were the children of all. The loss of home became one loss. And the golden time in the West was one dream. And it might be that the sick, a sick child threw despair into the hearts of 20 families of 100 people that a birth there in a tent kept a hundred people quiet and awestruck through the night and filled a hundred people with the birth joy in the morning. A family which the night before had been lost and fearful might search its goods to find a, a present for a new baby. In the evening, sitting about the fires, the twenty were one. And the families learned what rights must be observed, the right of privacy in the tent, the right to keep the past black hidden in the heart. The right, that's a wonderful phrase, the right to keep the past black hidden in the heart. Um, the right to talk and to listen, the right to refuse help or to accept it, to offer help or to decline it, the right of a son to court the daughter and to be courted, the right of the hungry to be fed, the rights of the pregnant and the sick to transcend all other rights. So here you begin to see home in solidarity, in communal solidarity. Um, you see this also for Steinbeck, the government is the savior. Uh, it's in that government camp that they finally find dignity. And unions are the savior. Because it's if they band together into one family, one sort of domestic unit, then they can maybe change their lot in life. So home becomes togetherness. 
You know, you see in there the tension, you know, Paul saying, all I do all day is think about home and how we've lost it, and I'm no good anymore. And throughout the book, they talk about how he feels like uh, he's been emasculated because he can't lead his family. But there's Ma, and she says, no, we're not beat. We're not licked. We're the people, and we keep going. And, and you know, that reference, of course, to the Constitution, we the people of the United States. And what's, what, so locating hope, locating home in their solidarity together, in, in, their, in their being a community, in their being a we the people, that's where home is. Now Steinbeck takes this even further. He backs up. It's not just in our solidarity, but he even gets spiritual with it. We find our home not just in our togetherness, but in what Emerson would call the oversoul or the great soul. And it's when we connect ourselves, not just to other people, but to the sense of people, the great soul, that that's when we're truly at home. This is sort of in the book. That's not the high point, but for, uh, for Ford, that was the high point. Uh, this sense of, you know, togetherness. So I'm going to land the plane, get to the end of the book. They have to leave the government camp because they can't find work. Tom there is leaving because he's killed a man, second murder in his life, and he has to leave because he's killed a man in a fight around organizing a union, and now the whole family is busting up. They have to leave the government camp because they can't find work. They end up squatting in an abandoned uh, boxcar. And then they have to leave that because the rain starts, and there's so much rain, it starts to flood. And I didn't read it, but the opening of the book, the first chapter talks about how much dust there is, and toward the end, there's a whole chapter on how much rain there is. So the irony, at the beginning, they're driven from their home in Oklahoma because of not enough water, and now they have to leave this boxcar that they're squatting in because of too much water, right? And so there's just irony. Nature is not even a home for them. And as it's raining, before they leave, Rose of Sharon has her baby, but she has, the baby is stillborn. So that's a loss of hope, right? Rose of Sharon, has, her pregnancy has symbolized domesticity and hope and all of that, but it's stillborn. I'm just going to read two more passages to you really quick. Um, and so it's, the baby is born dead. They put it in a box and they make poor Uncle John bury it. In the gray dawn light, Uncle John waded around the end of the car past the Jode truck, and he climbed the slippery bank to the highway. He walked down the highway past the boxcar flat until he came to a place where the boiling stream ran close to the road, where the willows grew along the roadside. He put his shovel down, and holding the box in front of him, he edged through the brush until he came to the edge of the stream. For a time, he stood watching it swirl by, leaving its yellow foam among the willow stems. He held the apple box against his chest. And then he leaned over and he set the box in the stream and steadied it with his hand. He said fiercely, go down and tell him. This is to the baby's corpse in the box. Puts it in the water. Go down and tell him. Go down in the street and, 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 and rot and tell him that way. Go down. That's the way you can talk. Don't even know if you was a boy or a girl. Ain't going to find out. You go on down now and lay in the street. Maybe they'll know then. And he guided the box gently into the current and let it go. It settled low in the water, edged sideways, whirled around, and turned slowly over. The sack floated away, and the box caught in the swift water floated quickly away out of sight behind the brush. What does that remind you of? Moses, obviously, and even the go down, right? So the famous hymn, Go Down Moses. So this loss of hope. The Israelites found a home. Their Moses got him home. This Moses died. So this total lack of, of hope. So they keep going, they leave the boxcar, now the truck is flooded, they're walking, they finally find a barn, and I'm just going to read you the end. They get into the barn and there's an old man laying there dying, starving, and his son. And I'm going to read you the end, and you, if you've read the book, you know why they couldn't in 1940s make this the ending, right? 
So they walk into the barn, and, there's the, and, and Rose of Sharon, she has a comforter on. You know, she's just lost this baby the day before. She has a comfort. She's wearing a comforter or a blanket. They walk into the barn. They see this man laying down and this kid, and they say, What's the matter? What's the matter with that fellow? The boy spoke in a croaking monotone. First he was sick, but now he's starving. What? Starving. Got sick in the cotton. He ain't ate for six days. Ma walked to the corner and looked down at the man. He was about 50, his whiskery face gaunt, and his open eyes were vague and staring. The boy stood beside her. Your pa? Ma asked. Yeah, says he wasn't hungry. He just ate. He said he just ate. He gave me all the food. Now he's too weak, can't hardly move. I didn't know. He said he ate or he wasn't hungry, and then he gave me the food. Last night I went and bust a window and stole some bread. Made him chew her down, but he puked it all up, and, and then he was weaker. Got to have soup or milk. You folks got money for soup or milk? Ma said, hush, don't you worry, we'll figure something out. Suddenly the boy cried, he's dying, I tell you. He's starving to death, I tell you. Hush, said Ma. She looked at Pa and Uncle John standing helplessly gazing at the sick man. She looked at Rose of Sharon huddled in the comforter. Ma's eyes passed Rose of Sharon's eyes and then came back to them, and the two women looked deep into each other. The girl's breath came short and gasping. She said, yes. Ma smiled. I knowed you would. I knowed, I knowed you would. She looked down at her hands, tight locked in her lap. Rose of Sharon whispered, Will, will, will you all go out? The rain whisked lightly on the roof. Ma leaned forward, and with her palm, she brushed the tousled hair back from her daughter's forehead, and she kissed her on the forehead. Ma got up quickly. Come on, you fellas, she called. You come on and get, the tool, get out into the tool shed. Ruthie opened her mouth to speak. Hush, Ma said. Hush and get. She herded them through the door, drew the boy with her, and she closed the squeaking door. For a minute, Rose of Sharon sat still in the whispering barn. Then she hoisted her tired body up and drew the comforter about her. She moved slowly to the corner and stood looking down at the wasted face into the wide, frightened eyes. Then slowly she lay down beside him. He shook his head slowly from side to side. Rose of Sharon loosened one side of the blanket and bared her breast. You've got to, she said. You've got to. She squirmed closer and pulled his head close. There, she said. There. Her hand moved behind his head and supported it. Her fingers moved gently in his hair. She looked up and across the barn, and her lips came together and smiled mysteriously. So where's Jerry Reddick, who read The Lanyard? Where did you go? We, inclusio. We have now an inclusio. <laughs> Started with an image of motherhood. We're ending with an image of motherhood. This image of domesticity. What is more domestic than a baby at a mother's breast? What is more home than a baby at a mother's breast? And yet here, obviously, it's a little uncomfortable um, because of the context of feeding a starving man. Obviously, they couldn't do that in the 1940s, so we had to have mom's inspiring constitution speech as the end. Um, home here, so he's critiqued this American dream. We are a rootless, homeless nation. We have, we have taken land from someone else, and land is going to be taken from us. We are socially mobile, upwardly mobile, pursuit of happiness. We're always on the move. There is no home except in human compassion, except in when human beings care for one another. Um, a home based on relationship, a, ho a home based on place, that's not going to work. A home based on a future hope, that's not going to work. The endless itinerary of desire and homelessness in the pursuit of happiness ultimately will not make us happy. Home is ultimately relationship. It's ultimately community, and it's based on the bonds that we form with each other. Now, Steinbeck isn't exactly Christian, um, but there's a, a deep Christianity running through this, not just the allusions to the Exodus story, clearly that, 
but also the idea that ultimate home is in relationship. That is ultimately very biblical. You know, where we end up in Revelation is not so much a place, but in relationship. Home or heaven is described in the Bible as a wedding feast. Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. It's described in relational terms. So biblically also home is not a place. It's being in complete relationship with God and with each other. In fact, the word righteousness actually means right relatedness. Home is when we are rightly related to each other, to God, to nature. Home is not a place. It's not an ideal that you can get to. You, you never had it and you never can get to it. Home is when we are connected to the soul of God and to the soul of each other. It's a little bit like what Augustine says. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. Now, for Steinbeck, that you is not necessarily a personal God. It's the oversoul, but it's very similar to the Bible that says home is when we are related rightly to God and each other and to the land. And that's all I have to say about that. So, Scott Mann is, I just want to point out, Scott, that we ended five minutes, I think the first time in 10 years, we actually ended five minutes before we were supposed to be done. Well, great. That just means I get more time. Again, I'm Scott Mann. I'm Associate Pastor for Discipleship here. And uh, on behalf of the library team and the Christian Growth Department, again, I just am pleased to be able to offer some thanks and some invitations as we conclude this part of our evening. Uh, to Scott and Christina, again, we say thank you. They, uh... They're even better than the U.S. Postal Service, not even a hurricane. Uh, stop them from getting all their stuff prepared, so thank you. And uh, a big thank you to Candy Losh and our whole library team uh, who are out there and around. Uh, <clears throat> as you enjoy our open house afterwards, be sure to thank them. And uh, they just work tirelessly week in and week out year round to help strengthen biblical literacy and encourage all of us in our spiritual growth. So uh, we're very grateful for them. And then we're all very grateful for you for coming. We want to send a, a special welcome to those of you who might be visitors among us. We're glad that you are here. And we're also grateful for our Literary Night regulars. How many are Literary Night regulars in the house? Very good. Thank you. If you'd like an email about next year's Literary Night, be sure to leave us your email information on the sign-up tables in the back. And now for some invitations. I'd like to invite you to complete the feedback form that you have in your program to let us know a little bit about what you think about this program tonight and what was helpful. And uh, you can always email your comments to the library team at bellpress.org as well. I invite you, again, as Jerry and Scott have, to uh, give generously to the offering tonight um, and to even consider donating a book from our wish list. The library has a wish list. And these are the two ways that you can contribute to the library outside of the church's general offering, which we are great, grateful for. Um, you can leave your offering in the plates as you leave the sanctuary and pick up our wish list there as well. You are also invited to participate in our two book clubs we have at this church. And we sponsor those. And you can find more information on that out in the lobby. And I invite you to check out uh, our library at home. 
Many of you may know this by now, but you can search our library catalog from home uh, using the website. You can place holds on uh, books and DVDs, any of our resources, you can place holds and then come and pick them up. You can make suggestions of resources that you think we should have in our library collection. You can also review our wish list and make donations. You can review, um, you can use our online uh, resource guide. If you are doing some research or you have a question about something you find in your Bible or you just want to know something about something, uh, we want our library webpage to be sort of your trustworthy theological resource. Please do not Google theological questions. <laughs> Please do not do that. Go to our library website and you will find trustworthy theological resources uh, that, that we, we, are, we stand behind. Um, we also have a couple of computers set up in the back uh, so with volunteers there so that if you want to see how to do it here so that you can go and do it there at home, uh, we're all set up for that as well tonight. Finally, I invite you to uh, jo enjoy our open house. We've got refreshments for you in the back. You can look over our new materials that we've just acquired. Uh, we completely finished uh, the whole Bible this year of buying new commentaries for every book in the Bible, uh, as well as a whole lot of other resources. Um, we've got topical reading lists back there. You can check out books tonight uh, and anytime. And we encourage you to visit both library locations. You all know that we have a library location in the welcome room off the lobby, as well as in the third floor rotunda at the top of the stairs, top of the elevator. Um, and our library volunteers are very glad to answer questions. We staff the library every Sunday uh, and also on Wednesday nights uh, sometimes. So uh, ask our volunteers anything and they'll be glad to help you. Again, thank you for coming and we'll see you next year.